I, I'm, I'm quite genuinely, honestly surprised to see like this many people here today after what I drove through and I know you drove through and uh, I'm glad that you were able to make it. I know not everyone that registered was able to, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to give a thank you to Maxwell who is uh, running slides for the very first time ever. <laughs> Maxwell had about two minutes of training tops and he's doing a great job, so really appreciate him uh, jumping in at the last minute to run slides for us. I want to take a few minutes to just go through one particular detail that we talked about at our annual meeting, uh, just as a checkpoint for us. Like if you were to go to a doctor uh, year after year for one particular problem, uh, it doesn't mean that the rest of your life is a mess. It's the one checkpoint you're watching for to see you know, how you're doing in this one area. And it's, it's our finances. It's one thing I've been talking about here for Stratford for some time. And I just want to show you where we are at. Uh, this isn't something, this is not like, a, oh, you need to start, you know, it's nothing crazy. I just want to make sure we're aware of the information. So um, this past year in 2021, Cornerstone Stratford, so that's just our site here. The expense to run the site for the year is $141,000. And $804. So um, obviously, that's my entire salary, right? Yeah, like, no, there's a lot of, I, not even half, okay? So like, this is like, this is, uh, this is not really expensive as far as churches go, I, I would say, especially in Atlantic Canada. This, this might sound like a lot of money, but it, it's really not. Um, and our unrestricted gifts, so there was more gifts that came in during the run of a year in terms of mission and building and all that, and, and all that was great. But our unrestricted gifts came in here in Stratford to $104,000, which means we were $37,000 behind the actual cost of running this site. Which, I mean, none of us have to be financial geniuses to know that's, that's not a great situation. We do have some internal funding that makes up a bit of that difference. So it was about $25,000, 26, something like that, that we were shy of the actual cost of running Stratford. Now that sounds bad, and it kind of is, but here's the good news. We've been increasing here at Stratford every year. So I've been here for three years as the pastor, and every one of those three years, even in the middle of a pandemic, uh, you folks have been giving more and more generously each year. So it's getting better every year. We still have a ways to go but it's getting better. So that's good news, but it's, it's something to be aware of as we keep going forward. And I want to show you just what 20, uh, 2022 looks like for our budget. Um, what we have budgeted for our expenses, we trimmed just a little bit, but our expenses are looking at $136,000 for this coming year. And we're, we're hoping to match that in terms of our unrestricted giving. Now, I know that many of you have been giving to Stratford for a really long time, and if that's the case, I just want to say thank you. I know some of you have given really generously, really sacrificially. I don't know what you give. I don't, like, know how much any of you give, and I never want to know, because my role as a pastor isn't to care about the numbers. I'm to care about you. But I do know that, um, that some of you have been coming here a long time, and you've been giving very generously, and I want to thank you for that. I also know that some have been uh, just starting to come recently. Some of you are just getting on board, and I know sometimes it takes a while once you start attending a church before you start giving or start giving in any significant way. 
And if that's you, I just simply invite you to join us in making things happen, becoming sort of a partner with us as we try to do life and ministry together. And I would also encourage you to consider, are you able to give more? It's something I consider every year. I look at what I give and I try to, even if it's just saying, well, I'm going to give another five or ten dollars, round the number up to the next, you know, de- uh, sort of tens or whatever, just try to increase however I can. That's a practice I've had my entire life. And uh, I know some of you have had that as well, but if that's not something you have practiced, I'd encourage you to, to start, start somewhere and, and to sort of consider what you could do. I thought, what is the difference well, if we, I think it's about $800 a week if we increased our giving, which sounds like a lot, but if you divide that between like 80 people, we're talking seven, eight, ten dollars $10 a week more a person that attends uh, on a Sunday, and, and we could match that, which doesn't sound as crazy when you think about that. Uh, some of you would throw away $12, $15, you know, just eating out at a, a single meal without thinking. Um, so maybe you could be more intentional about the way that you uh, express sort of worship to God in giving. I won't say more than that. I just want you to be aware of the numbers. They are improving. We're getting better. We still have a long way to go, and I'm hoping we can make it this year. And if that's something that you can consider how to be a part of, if you want to pray about that, uh, seek the Lord, then I know the Lord will speak to you one way or another. So thank you for that. If you have questions, feel free to let me know or contact our treasurer. Uh, There's all kinds of ways we can get you more info, but that's the most basic number that I wanted to share with you today. All right. No one ever loves to talk about money, I know, but it's important. And we don't ever want it to become an issue that slows us down because things have been going really well here. And I've, I've really enjoyed seeing what God's been up to. Even in the midst of a pandemic, our, our attendance has sort of been increasing. We've been seeing new people and it's been really wonderful. So let me start with this. Let me start the sermon with a question for you. Have you ever had a gift that you gave that was like a total miss Or have you ever received a gift and it was extremely obvious to you when you got the gift that this person does not know me? Well, you can think about that for a moment on a slightly different track than that. I want to tell you a short story of when I went to Germany uh, a number of years ago. And at the time, there was a large event that was going to gather Baptist youth from all around the world. So there were literally people from every continent coming to a meeting to plan this event. They were anticipating there might be 10,000 youth, Baptist youth from around the world. And I got to go be part of those planning sessions in Germany where the event was going to be held. And I was, I was thrilled. It was one of the first real big trips I'd ever made overseas. Um, and I was going to get to meet people from all around the world. Just thrilled. And our hosts wanted to honor us in a really significant way. And so they kept pulling out all the stops and they would give us like the royal treatment, you know, they were treating us really well. And at one point, one of the ways that they often did that was through the food that they provided. And at one point we went to a local church um, and we got to meet some of the people there and they were just so excited to see us and they wanted to go above and beyond uh, to ensure that we felt welcome and that we were treated well. And they set out one of the most sort of like elegant dishes that they could think of, which was, I don't know what you call it in German, um, but I, I would say, I would say steak tartare, or, or, or perhaps you could picture just 
a, a plate of raw hamburger meat. Now, I had seen this eaten by the mayor of the city who was joining us the night before. And he gobbled it down like there was no business. Like, he was just thrilled. This was an incredible meal for him. And he was eating. We were in a beautiful restaurant. And he just gobbled that whole plate down. And I was like, man, that looks raw. And and if you know anything about traveling internationally, one of the first things they say to you is, don't eat, like, raw meat, obviously. Right? Like... Don't eat meat that hasn't been cooked. And all kinds of reasons, right? Like, that's not usually something I'm into doing here in Canada, but certainly not in a foreign country, because even if it's safe for the people who live there, it might not be safe for you, just different bacteria and so on. So nobody, yeah, remember, we were people from all around the world. None of us ate any of that meat. And as the situation went on and on, it became more and, ob- more, and more obvious that none of us were going to eat the most like fancy dish that they had prepared. And we realized there's a huge <coughs> cultural disconnect here where they think they're doing something really great for us. And all of us know if we enjoy the dish you've prepared, well, I mean, how prepared can it be when it's raw? <laughs> but when, if we were to eat that dish, we would die. <laughs> Or spend the next four days in the bathroom, right? Like, this is not going to be a good situation for us. Now, today in in the story from Judges that we're going to look at, there's a situation that's going to come up towards uh, a little further down the story where it's, it's kind of like that, where there's a person who acts in a way that is so out of step with who God is, but doesn't realize it because he doesn't know God. So we'll get to that story in a moment. But uh, let's, let's get into Judges. Now, Judges uh, chapter 10, 11, 12 is going to lead us through another cycle. And we've been seeing these cycles that go round and round in the book of Judges, where the people of God turn away from God in sin and rebellion. Then they experience oppression. They cry out to God and God raises up a judge and then the judge frees them and they have peace for some time. And so we're going to enter into this next cycle of a new judge. And it's the story of a guy named Jephthah. But before we get to him, let me tell you the setting of the sin and rebellion. So let's go to the next slide here. In Judges 10, verse 6, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They served the images of Baal and Ashtoreth and the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. They abandoned the Lord and no longer served him at all. Now, let me just simply highlight one thing. They are looking to many, many different gods. It's not like they have just sort of said, well, we're going to replace God with another one. They've gone in all directions. They're looking at all the nations around them, and they're just joining in whatever they're doing. So, you know, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, Philistia, that's five different nations that are being mentioned that each have their own list of gods. Now, it's not that they aren't still religious. They have redirected their religious energy in other other ways. And it has removed their relationship with God. And so it says they no longer served him at all. It's it's not like that they were kind of like, well, I'll, I'll go to church on Sundays and I'll you know, go to the mosque on Fridays. And it wasn't, they, they were, they had just given up on God completely and they were doing something totally different. 
They were abandoning God and pursuing just everyone and anything around them. Now, this was something they were warned about in the very beginning, that if they weren't careful, they were going to fall under the influence of all the foreign nations and that they would lead them astray and into temptation and turn away from God. This was not a surprise to God. He'd warned them about this. But the people of Israel are on this downward slope and it's getting worse and worse as they each generation seem to turn away from God. And then after they do come back for a while, they slip away again. And so they have been still very religious, but in all the wrong ways. Let's go to the next slide here. And then there's this exchange as they, they cry out to God and God speaks. The Lord replies, Did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Ma-? This is a long list of times he's rescued them. And he's reminding them about how he has been faithful to take care of them. Now, in the small group that I lead on Wednesday nights, one of the things we've often talked about in Judges is how people are forgetful of God and need to be reminded of who God is and what God has done. So that's what God is doing. Once again, he's reminding them who he is, what he has done for them as a people. He's telling them the long list of other nations that have tried to oppress them that he has freed them from. He's reminding them of it. And he says, when they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods. So he's saying, no matter how many times I've taken care of you, you still turn away from me. No matter how many times you've cried out to me, I've responded, I've rescued you, but you never follow me anymore. You just... You're just coming around whenever you're in trouble. And so he says, so I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, we have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. And he was grieved by their misery. So it says that God goes on to raise up Jephthah, the judge. But what we see here is that the people have turned to whatever's convenient, whatever's enjoyable, whatever's easy, whatever's right in front of them, and they've turned away from God over and over again. And you might say to yourself, like, man, people back then were so stupid. But what are the things that drive your life? What are the influences? What are the values that you have? What are the things that draw your attention on a day-to-day basis? I'm going to trip over this cord. (laughs) It's an easy list to come up with. A lot of times we are compelled by our financial situation to act in a certain way, to invest our time and our energy. It shapes the way we think, the way we feel about people, the way we relate to others. Money is an obvious, we could say, God in our world. There's status. There's, there's the, the idea that we want to be popular, that we want to be you know, seen as good, that we want to be acceptable to people, that we want to belong to the group. And those types of things drive us to do all kinds of things that we might not normally want to do on our own. 
or we have all kinds of things just deep within us, desires that we want to fulfill. And so we pursue those desires and allow them to drive us, to lead us, to control us, to be our God, really. We might think that these ancient people are kind of out to lunch and that they're really pursuing, you know, why would you pursue this random God? Like, But we have all kinds of things that we pursue in our world today that drive our lives, our decisions, the, the things that we do on a day-to-day basis far more than a relationship with God ever does. And so before we sort of stand in judgment and say, wow, they really missed the mark. How could they be so silly? Let's think about the things that actually drive how we think, act, move, live, breathe, and so on. What are the things that drive your life? What are the things that compel you when you're trying to make a decision? What informs that decision? Does God fit into that? Or is he the the second thought or the thing that you're only reminded of occasionally? Or maybe only when things get difficult do you start thinking, ah, maybe I should pay more attention to, to what God's saying and doing. Maybe I should go back to church. So in the midst of this situation, we're introduced to a person. We're introduced to um, the person of Jephthah. And it's said that he's a great warrior. But what we're told is that he was, um, well, he was the son of a prostitute. So he wasn't well respected in his family or among the people there. And so what happened is his brothers drove him out and said, like, we're not going to share our inheritance with you. You're only like a half-brother. You're not even legit. I'm sure they could think of other words that they could say about him that were much less kind. And so they drove him out. He left. And he went off and it says he, he, he gathered around him a bunch of scoundrels. A bunch of people that were, you know, rough around the edges. But he belonged with them and they liked him. He was a great warrior, and that was what he did. That was who he was. But then now the Israelites start getting oppressed. And they're dealing with this situation, and they need relief from the pain. They come back to him. Like, who do we know that could take care of this situation? Who who's kind of a big brute of a guy? Who's like, who doesn't mind getting his hands dirty? Who's a great warrior? And they're like, oh man. It's Jephthah. I have a really hard time saying that name. I feel like I'm like tripling over my tongue. Jephthah. Let's look at how this exchange goes between the two of them on the next slide. So when the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, Aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me out of my father's house? Aren't you the ones who kicked me out? And now you come crawling back? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Now, what we see here is something, I don't know if you realize it, but this is really the very same kind of story that we saw just a moment ago in how the Israelites relate to God. They were using God over and over again to get free. And now they're going to this guy that they didn't want to have anything to do with. And they're saying, please, just come, save us, rescue us. 
We'll let you be our king. We'll follow you. You can rule over us. You'll be our leader. What you can see here is that the people of Israel have a dysfunctional relationship with one another and with God. They use each other. They only care what they get out of the relationship. And they're willing to say and do and go along with whatever as long as they get relief and freed from the difficulty. This is a relationship of convenience. It's a transaction. Yes, Jephthah is going to benefit from this relationship, and so will they. But it's not one that's based on love or kindness. There's no real relationship that's positive and healthy here. And the relationship with God has also been one fraught with that kind of manipulation. And so what we're seeing is they are going to get a leader just like them. A leader who is uh, just partly there. And so here Jephthah agrees that he will do this, and he agrees to, to be part of this, and they agree that they will let him be their leader if he drives out the Ammonites. Now, the story takes sort of a detour into how Jephthah then go on, goes on to deal with the king from the other nation, and there's a big dispute over land, and there's a bit of a squabble. And what's interesting is that Jephthah seems to actually know quite a bit of the history of Israel, because he knows the military stuff, he knows the boundary lines of the properties, and so he's, he's good at that stuff. He's not so good on the religious front, he's not so good at even understanding who God is, who Yahweh is. Because like all the rest of the Israelites, he's been doing his own thing, following whoever, so he hasn't really been paying attention, he hasn't really grown up in Sunday school, he hasn't been coming to church on a regular basis. This is a bit of a joke. There was obviously no Sunday school. There was no church back then. I say that. Maybe you didn't know that. That's okay. Um, but we see that this is not really a person who has real faith. He's engaging in this relationship of convenience. Now, he, he does have some sense that if he's going to win, it's going to be God's help that's going to do it. So he's he, along with the people of Israel, seems to be making an effort to turn back to God, but he just doesn't really know who God is. Because he hasn't been paying attention. And so in this exchange with land ownership, he doesn't even, he doesn't even really know about the foreign gods of this other nation. He names the wrong god that that king is following. And it goes on, and that's, you know, that's not really an exciting part of the chapter. But he comes to, to fight them now and to drive them out. And in the midst of this, he turns to God in prayer. Let's go to the next slide here. And this is the prayer that he makes, the vow that he makes before the Lord. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. This is interesting for many different reasons. So he's, made, he's, he's trying to make a bargain with God. And, and what's great is he recognizes that he needs God's help if he's going to win. That's a positive. He recognizes that he needs to cry out to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, not one of these foreign gods. That's a positive thing. But he doesn't know God. He doesn't really understand 
who God is and what God wants. He wants to honor him, but he wants to do that so that he can get something from God. So he says, if you give me victory, I will give you whatever comes out of my house as an offering. And you might say, well, like, what's that about? But you got to remember, back in this day, it's not uncommon for the house to kind of be built together and the animals would stay there too. And like, you know, he's probably thinking like maybe the cow that lives in the, the part of the house like will come out through the door and he'll sacrifice the cow. That'd be a very generous offering. Or maybe he thinks it'll be a lamb that lives, you know, there at the house and the lamb will come out to greet him. Uh, it, it's very unlikely he's thinking about a human, but maybe. And what does happen is he wins. They win the battle. They win the battle against the Ammonites. They're victorious and they're freed. They're freed from that oppression. Wonderful. And as he's coming back towards his house to celebrate his victory, no doubt the news has already spread home. And the first thing that comes out the door of his house is his daughter playing a tambourine. What's your first thought if this is you? Your first thought is, well, that doesn't count. That's my daughter. That's my only child. Like, okay, I'll sit here for another minute. And the first animal that comes out, just to be clear, God, like we were talking about animals, right? We're not talking about human beings. But Jephthah breaks down in tears and he says, I've made a vow to God. I have to go through with it. And his daughter says, why are you crying? What's going on? He explains what's going on. She says, okay, well, you have to sacrifice me. You've made a vow to the Lord. Like, just give me some time to get my head around this. And then I will be the sacrifice. And you think at this point, you know, Jephthah is going to go, Okay, well, obviously God can see that we, we want to honor him. He can see our faithfulness. He doesn't really want me to do this. So we'll just call it off. How wonderful that we've been willing to go that far. That even my daughter was... No, they go through with it. And this daughter is killed as a sacrifice to God. Now, I've heard a number of sermons about this. I've heard some people talk about this and say, Isn't that great? Isn't it great that Jephthah made a vow and he went through with it? And when we make vows to God, we should go through with those vows too. A promise is a promise. Well, that sounds good. That sounds good. But it's not. It sounds like it's good to keep a vow to God. But what if the vow you gave to God was stupid in the first place? What if the thing you have promised to give God that was meant to honor him does the exact opposite? What if the offering you set before God just looks like a bunch of raw hamburger meat? That's not what God wanted. That's not an honorable gift to God. And in this moment, Jephthah has committed himself to God earnestly, passionately, He's willing to go through no matter what the cost, and that sounds wonderful. It sounds like he's a deeply committed follower of God, and that sounds like a good thing, isn't it? But he doesn't know who God is, and he's committed himself to the wrong God. 
He's deeply, deeply religiously committed. He's deeply willing to follow no matter what the cost, and yet he doesn't know God, and he's not following him in this moment. And the gift that he's offering is not one that God wants. And so it doesn't honor God. How do I know that? I know that because God said it explicitly. Let's look at the next verse here. This goes back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18, 19 to 20. This was something that God communicated to the people of Israel just before they went into the promised land where Japheth is a judge now. God said this, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. That's been a major theme through Judges, that they're tempted to follow the customs of the people living there. And then the very first thing he wants to mention, when you get in the land, the Lord your God, be careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Number one on the list. Jephthah doesn't even know the basics He doesn't even know God. He doesn't know what would honor God. And he doesn't realize that he's headed down the wrong path. And this concerns me because I have seen in my lifetime many people who say they are deeply committed to the ways of God but don't know God. Who say, wave the flag, I'm a Christian but don't know Christ. Who say they will do anything to honor Jesus above all else, but don't know Jesus. They aren't quoting him. And the choices they're making don't line up with who Jesus is. They don't look like something Jesus would do. They don't sound like Jesus. They don't look like Jesus. They don't act like Jesus. And there's a verse in the Bible that talks about what you will look like if you're filled with the Spirit of God. And it talks about your character. You'll have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, selfless, gentleness and self-control. These are the qualities of what someone looks like when they're following Jesus. But I've seen many, many people who claim to be Christians acting in a way that absolutely defies the person of Jesus and his character. Their actions, their characters, the beliefs, the things they say. They claim to be promoting Christian values. And yet the means by which they go about pursuing those values and that freedom or whatever it might be on an issue absolutely go against who God really is. Now the trouble is, when I say that, you might think I'm talking about something particular that you love. And maybe you're right, and maybe you're wrong. But do you think I'm talking about you, or do you think I'm talking about someone else? It's me, it's you, it's all of us that say we're committed to God, but we live as if something else is actually more important. Do we really know him? 
Are we, when we say that we're trying to honor him, have we taken the time to know what he wants? Or are we setting out a plate of raw hamburger? I'll take you a couple verses as we think this through a little bit more. Go to the next one here. There's a verse in Proverbs, a simple one, but this, is, this has been something that struck me from a young age. Proverbs 19.2 says, Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. It's wonderful to be enthusiastic about your faith. It's wonderful to say that you're deeply committed to God. It's wonderful to be just jumping up and down, to be expressing it in all kinds of like outward ways. Yes, that's great. Enthusiasm is wonderful. But if you don't know God, if you don't actually know who he is, you haven't taken time to listen to his voice, learn his ways, enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. And it can leave you to set out a plate of raw hamburger. Let's go to the next verse here on the next slide. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is in a confrontation now with the people um, who are religious leaders. And they're asking, like, why aren't you doing the customs and the traditions in the typical way? Why is it? And these are people who are deeply committed to God. Deeply committed to expressing their lives, living their lives in a way that is in line with God. And yet, what Jesus says to them is, why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. It's possible to be deeply, deeply religious, deeply, deeply committed to God and still not know him. To still have our hearts very far from him. It's possible to be right in front of Jesus and not realize who you're talking to. Not be anything like Jesus. It's possible to come to church every Sunday for your entire life and still miss who he really is to still not have wrapped our lives around his and so deeply ingrained ourselves in his way of thinking and his way of doing and being that we are in opposition to his ways, his purposes, his character. That was Jephthah. That was the people of Israel. And let's be honest, that's often us. Is there one more slide? Jesus said this, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Do you know the voice of Jesus? Do you know the voice of Jesus? If you say that you follow Jesus, are you actually listening to his voice? I don't have any, more, you know, I'm a pastor. I don't have any more magical way to do that than you do. I read my Bible. I pray. I listen to the counsel of others who are deeply committed to God as well. And through all of that, the Spirit of God speaks, leads, guides, and I get to know the person of Jesus. I trust him, I follow him, or I don't. Same for you. Are you praying? Are you in Scripture? Are you involved in the community, the community of God? 
These are the ways that we learn to know the voice of Jesus so that we don't commit ourselves deeply to things that are actually in opposition to Jesus. Because we know his voice so clearly that we don't get pulled off in every direction like the Israelites did. We don't commit ourselves to things that really are, are against the way of God and that would break his heart. We need to know the voice of Jesus. We need to know the person of Jesus. And we need to follow him. Now I'm going to end with a slide here. This is a quote um, from a man named Stephen Matson. He wrote a book called The Great Reckoning, Surviving a Christianity That Looks Nothing Like Christ. Whew, just the subtitle is convicting for me. Do we have a, a faith? Do we have a Christianity that actually looks like Christ? And this is his quote. Christians should regularly ask themselves, is my faith more a reflection of my political, cultural, and social, sociology, economic values and actions? Or a reflection of the values and actions of Christ? Am I following the crowd? Am I following a political party? Am I following a Facebook group? The people at my work? Am I following that influencer on Instagram? Am I following my pocketbook? Who says pocketbook anymore? Am I following the economic desires that I have to live in a certain way? Am I talking about my bank account? Am I following the trends that I see on TV or on Netflix or what is shaping and influencing my life, my decisions, who I am as a person? Is it the people? Is it the things? Is it the sociological world? <laughs> or is my life actually a reflection of the values and actions of Christ? That's a convicting question for me, and I hope for you as well. We can say that we're deeply committed to Christ. We can say that we're willing to die for our faith, but if our faith doesn't look anything like Jesus, it's misplaced, and bad things happen. I eat that raw hamburger meat, it doesn't go well for me. Jephthah makes a vow that he thinks he needs to honor God with, and his daughter dies. That does not honor God. It's wonderful to have deep commitment. It's wonderful to be willing to go all the way to the end of the line. But let's make sure that we are focused on who God really is, to know God's heart and the ways of Jesus, so that our deep commitment, passion, energy, the resources we have at our disposal are not wasted on a gift that's meant to honor and yet does nothing like it. Let us listen to the voice of Jesus that we might know life, that others might be blessed through us, that goodness and mercy and the love of God would be known in how we live. Every day. Aren't you glad you came to church today? 
There's a lot of different ways I could try to point this, and I'm not going to do that because it's not my job to try to manipulate you into landing in a certain way of understanding the text of Scripture. I simply want to do enough here in the words that I say that the Spirit of God stirs up within you whatever response you need to have. But if you need to follow up with me and have a conversation about how this plays out in your life and some of the things you're seeing and trying to figure out, by all means, let me know. Let me know. Because we together need to be listening to the voice of Jesus and allowing his voice to lead us in all things. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you want to guide us and lead us, that you gave yourself for us, and that you call us to follow with everything that we have. Help us not to be misguided in the way that we try to commit ourselves to you. Help us to find ways to honor you and glorify you that truly do that, that don't just fulfill some need within us or fulfill a misunderstanding that we have shape our thinking and our actions around who you are as a person, who your spirit is within us, and your purposes within the world. And Jesus, may you be honored in all that we say and do, so that your kingdom comes and your will is done here on earth just as it is in heaven. And we pray those words, not our will be done, but yours. Help us to align every fiber of our being, every aspect of who we are with you, your actions, your character. Convict us by your spirit where we have gone astray and lead us into life. In the name of Jesus, we pray.